this morning, what I can see of you in the bright lights here, shining in my eyes. Uh, my name's Jamie. If we have not yet met, uh, I'm one of the pastors. Uh, excited to, to be with you guys again this week after a week off. Thanks to Jason for jumping in and tackling part of Acts chapter 4. Last week, our family uh, got a little bit of a, a getaway last week. Uh, we have a four-year-old and a three-year-old, which does not mean we're any more rested than before we left. Um, but we did get away. Um, if you're joining us for the first time this morning, uh, we're slowly but surely working our way through one of the most action-packed books in all the Bible, the book of Acts. It's the story of a bunch of ordinary people empowered by the extraordinary spirit of God, turning the world upside down for the glory of Jesus Christ. That would be the thesis statement for this book of the Bible. In the first few chapters of the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is clearly evident in this earliest expression of the New Testament church, empowering God's people to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in both word and deed. You see it over and over again throughout this book. It doesn't take long for Satan to launch an attack, and he does so in a couple of different ways. We've already uh, seen one of them, persecution from the outside, uh, from the religious leaders, and moral corruption and compromise from the inside, which we'll see in this morning's passage. If Satan can get uh, people questioning the integrity of the church, then he can get people questioning the beauty and supreme worth of Jesus himself. The good news is that this morning's passage is not only Luke's attempt to expose the devil's tactics, but it's also one more declaration that God is the victor over the devil of hell. And so with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 4, We'll begin in verse 32 and work our way through chapter 5, verse 11 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the chairs in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. Uh, if you came in uh, not the owner of a Bible or bringing a translation with you that's a little difficult to track with, then you can take that Bible as the church's gift to you. Happy early Halloween. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump in, and we'll get rolling. God, I'm so grateful for the church. Um, just even a week away, missing this opportunity to be with your people, to open your word together, to participate in the sacrament of communion with the body of Christ, to sing of your praises collectively. Something was significantly lost for our family over the course of the past week, and so I'm thankful for the reminder of the joy that it is to come together with your people to Praise the superior son, the one who has made a way where there was no way so that we might be reconciled to you and know eternal joy in your presence. God, I pray that you would move by your spirit this morning to free us, to help us to know what it is to truly live as free people, freed by the gospel of Jesus Christ so that our acts of generosity, unity, and love are not manipulated manipulative or coerced, but rather are compelled by a seeing and savoring of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, would you move in power, drawing us into deeper repentance and faith for your glory, Lord, and for our joy. It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. 
So picking up the story where we've left off the last couple weeks, really, Peter and John have recently been in prison because they refused to stop talking about Jesus, which is a good thing, declaring him to be the only sufficient cornerstone upon which to build a person's life, declaring him to be the only hope of salvation. Going back to earlier in chapter four, the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, declaring that the power to perform miracles like the healing of the lame beggar outside of the temple, that that power came from Jesus, meaning that he's alive, the risen savior and king. The religious leaders are both astonished and and troubled by it all, astonished by the boldness of Peter and John, despite their lack of seminary credit hours on the one hand, and troubled because this band of Christ followers poses a real threat, a threat to their power, to their authority, to their comfort, to their safety, to their position in society, such that they do some threatening of their own, we're told, charging Peter and John not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But at the end of the day, they're ultimately forced to let them go in light of the fact that all the people are praising God for the lame beggar's healing. Peter and John, upon being discharged, Jason Uh, unpack this last week, join up with their brothers and sisters in Christ, committing themselves to prayer, asking God for the boldness to keep proclaiming the good news of Jesus in the midst of the persecution. And we're told, picking up in verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So here... Right off the bat, you get another description of the early church, similar to what we saw back in in chapter two. What's all the more encouraging here is that it comes in the wake of Peter and John's imprisonment, right? They're told to no longer speak in the name of Jesus. And rather than that causing a disbanding of the church, it causes more boldness. It causes more unity and generosity and love. The church could have been shut down right there on the spot in the midst of the beginnings of persecution, but she wasn't. And thus you and I are here today. A couple of things to to note here. Number one, everything that we see in these verses is predicated on belief. Now the full number of those who believed, believing in Jesus, seeing and savoring Jesus, being satisfied in Jesus, that kind of believing is, is at the heart of what you see in these verses. Secondly, Notice that belief in Jesus leads to both a tighter grip on people and a looser grip on possessions at the same time. On the one hand, a tighter grip on people. Now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul, united in love for Jesus and each other. Yet on the other hand, a looser grip on possessions. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. A willingness to give up things in order to love people. Russ Ramsey, in his commentary, says the highest value or purpose they could assign to the river of wealth that ran through their hands was the care of those in need. God tightened their hold on each other as he loosened their grip on their possessions. What what follows 
as we continue to read this morning's passage, is simply a contrast between belief on the one hand and unbelief on the other. The believing heart of Barnabas and the unbelieving hearts of Ananias and Sapphira. A picture of what it is to be changed from the inside out such that your acts of generosity and love are free. That's Barnabas. Versus a picture of what it is to conform externally to religious expectations such that your acts of generosity and love are coerced and manipulative. That's Ananias and Sapphira. Verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, because again, you have to have more than one name back then, apparently, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. That Barnabas is introduced as an example of sacrificial giving. Uh, he sells a field that belongs to him. He gives the money to the apostles for distribution to any who has need. This is the same Barnabas who will go on to support the apostle Paul soon after his conversion. That's Acts chapter 9. This is the same Barnabas who will go on to care for the newly redeemed uh, Gentile Christians in Antioch. That's Acts chapter 11. This is the same Barnabas who will go on to partner with Paul on his first missionary journey. That's Acts chapters 13 through 15. Barnabas believes and his belief in Jesus frees him to love people more and love things less. Verse 1 of chapter 5. But. That's how you know there's a contrast taking place here from a literary standpoint. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said... Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out, and buried him. Verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Strange story, right? The story of Ananias and Sapphira can be incredibly difficult to understand, especially if you've been taught somewhere along the way that the moral of the story is if you don't tithe, God will smite you. You know, it's like, wait a minute, the pastor's bringing out Acts 5. I don't think we're making budget right now. That must be what's going on. Ananias and Sapphira decide to sell a piece of property, just like Barnabas. They decide to give some of the proceeds uh, of that uh, sale to the church. But unlike Barnabas, Ananias and Sapphira's act is condemned and solemnly judged. Maybe you've heard somewhere along the way that, that the grievous sin in this couple's story is the love of money. Did they love money? That's very possible. At the very least, there's likely a fear of not having any. Right, which might explain their decision to hold back some of the proceeds. But notice that P 
Peter makes clear that they were under no obligation to sell their property in the first place. Verse four, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own, Peter says, nor were they under any obligation to give all of the proceeds away. Again, verse four, and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? The, the far greater issue, which Peter declares twice in this passage, is that they lie acting as though the amount that they lay at the apostles' feet is the full amount of the sale, that their sin is ultimately one of hypocrisy, a lack of integrity. They're attempting to appear more generous than they really are, choosing to deceive in order to appear godly in the eyes of others. Alongside the love of money is, is this love of praise and approval. Jesus called out the Pharisees for the exact same kind of hypocrisy, Desiring to be praised for their righteous acts, we're told in Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, here it is, who were lovers of money, on the one hand, heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who, here's the other part of it, who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is, and here it is again, exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The Pharisees loved both money and praise, according to Jesus, as do Ananias and Sapphira. Maybe they had seen some sort of favorable response as Barnabas sold his property and laid the proceeds at the feet of the disciples. Maybe, you know, they wanted a little bit of that for themselves. Happens all the time in the church, does it not? You see someone spotlighted a ministry opportunity and we want a little taste of that for ourselves, for people to, to see us doing something impressive for the glory of God. Ananias and Sapphira love money as well as being thought well of, and it leads them to lie. Think about how many lies are driven by a desire to be thought well of. Hey, I can't tell my boss why I'm really late. Right? What will he or she think of me? I can't tell my community group what's really going on in my life, under the, the surface at least. The desire to make a favorable impression oftentimes leads to deception in the human heart. And in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, it's a demeaning of and a lying to the Holy Spirit. As a side note, if you're one of those people who uh, likes systematic theology, you wanna see things laid out clearly in an organized fashion, show me where the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is God. Here it is, right here. Verse three, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Verse four, you have not lied to man, but to God. The delight of the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. The Holy Spirit is God. There you go. If anybody ever asks you, is the Holy Spirit God? Yes, Acts chapter five. Coming back to the story, as far as Ananias and Sapphira's deception goes, you might ask, well, how is that a demeaning of the Holy Spirit? Well, one of three things is happening here. Either they didn't believe that the Spirit was actually at work in the church, or they did believe that the Spirit was at work, but had no concern that the Spirit knew their thoughts, their emotions, their motives. Or they did believe that the Spirit knew their thoughts, their emotions, their motives, but that grace means license to do whatever you want. 
It's that Romans 6 kind of thinking where the Apostle Paul had to respond to a question that he knew the church would be tempted to ask, which is, should we just sin all the more so that grace might abound all the more? And Paul says to begin Romans 6, by no means. That's not what the gospel compels. The gospel doesn't compel us to trample on the grace of God in licentiousness. We see this kind of demeaning of the Holy Spirit in churches today, whether it be people who are content with the absence of the Spirit altogether, or those who believe that the Spirit is present but live as though He doesn't have a window into our our thinking, into our affections, into the motives that drive us to do what we do, or those who don't embrace a life of repentance because grace in, in their minds means license to do whatever you want. Ananias and Sapphira choose to lie about their generosity and the Holy Spirit reveals their deceit to Peter and he confronts them, declaring that as the Spirit has filled the church, which by the way, we've seen that now for four chapters strong, so Satan has filled their hearts to lie. Not simply to the apostles, but to God himself. They're pretending to be holy. They're they're self-seeking. They have no true reverent fear of the Lord and God brings judgment upon them, sending them to their graves. So here's a question. What, what, what are we to make of such a tragic story? What, what do we do with a story like this? I mean, we, we've all attempted to present ourselves as godlier than we actually are at some point, have we not? Can we just be honest for a second? Like, should we fear the same fate as Ananias and Sapphira? Here are just a, a few things to consider with a passage like this. Number one, and this is significant, There's a bigger war being waged here. On one level, there's the question as to who the leaders over Israel truly are. Is it the apostles or is it the religious leaders? Who are the true leaders? We we just saw Peter and John in a confrontation with the, the Sadducees, the scribes, the elders, the priests. And we'll see another confrontation before we even get to the end of chapter five next week. So the question begs to be answered, who are God's anointed? Whose words should really be given significant weight here? Is it the religious leaders or the apostles? And as we'll continue to see, the answer is that it is the apostles. The authority of the religious leaders is no match for the apostles. The phrase laid it at the apostles' feet, which we see three times in this passage, it communicates obedience and submission to authority, emphasizing that it really is the apostles who are the ones that Jesus has commissioned in leadership, not the religious leaders. It's the very ones who are declaring the glory and supreme worth of Jesus, not the ones who are seeking to do away with the mention of his name altogether. On another level, at the same time, there's a battle taking place in the spiritual realm between the spirit of God and the devil of hell. This story is a declaration that Satan is no match for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fills the hearts of men and women. And what happens in the book of Acts? The lame are healed. Souls are rescued. The the devil fills the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira, and what happens? The living are struck dead. There's this great contrast between the devil's work and the spirit's work in the book of Acts. This story presents Satan with a reason to tremble, which if you don't like Satan very much, should make you really happy this morning if nothing else does. Try as he may to derail the church, he's on the losing side of this battle. And you're evidence of that today, by the way. There's a ton at stake in these early formative stages 
of the New Testament church, which is probably why we see such an extreme act of judgment, one that we don't see quite as readily today. My guess is that you've probably not seen someone struck dead in an act of divine judgment with your own eyes. Ananias and Sapphira might have corrupted the earliest expression of the New Testament church at a moment when there was only one congregation existing, by the way. Tim Keller says this, In his commentary on the book of Acts, he says, Why was this sin seen as so serious? Remember what it was. Hypocrisy. Throughout all the centuries, nothing has hurt the work and witness of the church more than this. There is no more common complaint than there are so many hypocrites in the church. G.K. Chesterton was reputed to have said, The greatest argument against the truth of Christianity is the lives of Christians. (laughs) Keller goes on to say, That is absolutely true. Even the most convinced Christians are often cast into doubt by the thought, if the gospel is true, how can so many supposed Christians be so dishonest and cruel? Keller goes on to say, Therefore, the sin of Ananias and Sapphira is the most devastating sin to the Christian church. Murder, embezzlement, adultery, etc. are relatively less harmful to the gospel because they are very visible And when a person is guilty of such a sin, there is exposure and usually expulsion. But Ananias and Sapphira, he says, were guilty of spiritual pride and were using Christianity as a way to get a reputation for being moral and spiritual pillars. They had obviously missed the gospel's message of free grace to unworthy sinners. Thus, their Christianity was really a way for them to earn their reputation and sense of worth through spiritual achievements. They would have perhaps risen up into places of leadership, Keller says, in the church. They would have made the church a proud, smug, legalistic place. Yes, the sin was enormously dangerous. The reputation of the Christian church consisting of one congregation at this moment in redemptive history is at stake in a unique way. And with that, the reputation of Jesus is at stake. The good news of the gospel is at stake. And thus we see God's critical response of of judgment. There's a bigger war being waged here. Secondly, and this is sobering, we all deserve the fate of Ananias and Sapphira. The point of this passage is not that if you're a hypocrite, you'll likely drop dead in a moment. Don't leave this place freaking out as you exit There are other examples in the book of Acts of people like Ananias and Sapphira who don't drop dead in the moment. It is, however, a warning that counterfeit Christians are on a path toward destruction, which I think is significant in the Bible Belt. We see so many today who similarly practice self-seeking outward holiness and seem to go unpunished, but it's important to remember that all will one day stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ sobering to think about in this land of cultural, nominal Christianity, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, as the scriptures say elsewhere. A passage like this should cause us to cry out, but for the grace of God. Who in this gathering of people hasn't presented themselves as something they're not at some point along the way, myself included, a godlier version on the outside than what lies within. Some of us did it on the drive today as we argued with our spouses, but then said, pause button until we get done with this worship service thing and then we'll revisit this, right? Because you've got to cover those things up when you come into this place. That's the thinking. Who of us hasn't been guilty of hypocrisy somewhere along the way? 
playing the game, wearing the mask, pretending with God and other people, perhaps even using the church to look and feel superior to others, grabbing hold of ministry opportunities in order to experience the praises of man. Who of us hasn't lived at times as though the Holy Spirit doesn't have a window into our thoughts, into our motives, or lived as though grace means license to do whatever we want? This passage should cause us to cry out, Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. By your grace, make us like Barnabas, not like Ananias. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your kindness toward us. Give us grace to walk in integrity rather than hypocrisy. But for the grace of God in Christ Jesus, it might be our names written in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Which brings me to the good news. God has given us what we don't deserve in Jesus. That's the third point coming out of this morning's passage. It's in Jesus that we're given a righteousness that's not our own, his righteousness. He lived the perfect life that we could never live, a life free of hypocrisy, a life free of selfishness, a life of perfect sacrificial generosity. Not only that, it's in Jesus that our selfishness and hypocrisy are dealt with once and for all. He took our stinginess upon himself. He took our deceit along with the rest of our sins, and he bore those in his body on the tree. Knowing that sin is serious to God, consider the severity of what Jesus took upon himself as your substitute sin bearer, giving you his perfect righteous record in exchange for your sin record. A perfect record of honesty gifted to you in Jesus. A perfect record of sincerity gifted to you in Jesus. A perfect record of generosity gifted to you in Jesus. And let's not forget about his triumphant resurrection as he defeated not only our hypocrisy and selfishness, but the devil of hell himself. That if you're not a Christian, I think a passage like this presents a question. How is it that anyone can stand in the presence of the 5,000 degree centigrade holiness of God and not experience the same fate as Ananias and Sapphira, but rather enjoy making much of that God forever? And the answer is, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Say it every week in this space as we gather. And so if you're not a Christian, I invite you even now to turn to Jesus in faith and repentance, to know the joy of having your sins forgiven, to know the, the peace of the indwelling Holy Spirit, to know the gift of God himself. And if you are a Christian, you come into this place this morning and you find your heart longing for, clawing after the approval of man. Let me not get ahead of myself. There's one more thing that, that I think is significant in a passage like this. And it's that it's our believing in Jesus that truly frees us to live for the glory of God. Coming back to the very first point that I made this morning, everything of beauty that we see in these verses is predicated on belief. Now, the full number of those who believed Believing in Jesus, seeing and savoring Jesus, being satisfied in Jesus. That kind of believing is what changes us from the inside out so that our acts of generosity, integrity, and love are free acts. They're truly free. How do we loosen our grip on our possessions like what we see in Acts chapter 4? It's by believing that Jesus is a worthy king and that his kingdom is worth investing in. Because he's a good and worthy king and his kingdom shall never end. That's a really good return on investment, right? 
How, how do we experience the freedom from clawing after the praises of man, the approval of others? It's by believing that in Jesus, our approval before the God of the universe has already been fully secured, that we're beloved sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. How do we experience the, the joy of walking in integrity rather than hypocrisy and to see the freedom and joy of putting down the mask and truly being known? It's by believing that we've been robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which frees us to put down the inferior fig leaves that we try to hide behind. How do we live in a way that honors the Holy Spirit? It's by believing that the outpouring of the Spirit came at great cost to Jesus himself, that the Spirit is Jesus' gift to us. Why would we possibly outrage the Spirit of grace, to use the language of the author of Hebrews, when the Spirit is Jesus' kindness and gift to us. It's believing in Jesus, seeing and savoring Jesus, being satisfied in Jesus. That kind of believing is what changes us from the inside out. My prayer is that really a couple of things happen as we leave this place this morning. It's that those who come in seemingly put together, seemingly strong, seemingly having all of their ducks in a row, seemingly uh, religiously elite, would put that nonsense aside and acknowledge that the only strength that's, that's ours is the strength that God supplies, that the only reputation that's ours is the reputation Jesus gives us, that we could set that down, and that those of us who come in broken and weak and feeling like we can't share that with other people, that we have to keep that in the confines of the car until we exit this place, that we could set that nonsense aside too and could actually open our lives up to each other, that we could be a church of integrity rather than a church of deceit, that we could um, expose ourselves knowing that we've been robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and that affords us the opportunity to do so so that he might get the glory and so that we might experience greater joy and freedom. If we walk away from a passage like this focused on the church, we will eventually be crushed. But if we walk away from a passage like this focused on Jesus, we'll be both comforted and empowered to live a life of scandalous integrity and generosity. In a moment, we're gonna continue to worship in a number of ways as we do in this place week in and week out. Uh, one of those ways is through prayer. There will be people in the back of the room with our prayer team to, to pray with and for you. Maybe that's uh, one of the most simplistic first steps that you could take in exposing yourself for your own good, letting people into your life so that they can lift you up to the Lord. Um, we'll also receive of the elements, communion, there are two tables here up front, one in the back. We take the bread here representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. As you prepare to come this morning, just stop and soak in the scandalous grace of God. But for the grace of God, just the, the sobering reality that chapter 5 verses nine, uh, 1 through 11 could have had our names right there. But for the grace of God, God's kindness and grace toward us in Jesus Christ is our hope. So let's stop and soak in that and then come and receive the elements in celebration of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And then we have an opportunity to worship through song as we continue to sing to this glorious king who is, who is worthy, 
who's worthy of our worship, who's worthy of of our making him look impressive rather than ourselves.